Welcome to the weekly podcast of Science and the City, the public gateway to the New York Academy of Sciences, online at scienceandthecity.org. Today is Friday, September 4th, 2009. I'm Alana Rangi. Zimmer is a science writer with a knack for taking complicated science concepts and breaking them down for the masses. His most recent project is a textbook on evolution, but really, it reads more like a story with lots of twists and turns in the plot. Probably because that's what evolution basically is. The book comes out in October, and I got my hands on an advanced copy. This week, I chat with Zimmer about the Tangled Bank, and how you tackle the topic of how we got here. This fall, Science in the City is bringing you provocative thinkers in science and culture to the New York Academy of Sciences. Join Richard Dawkins, Aubrey de Grey, Paul Ekman, and many more world-renowned scientists and thinkers. They'll bring you the newest, hottest ideas in science, from anti-aging to nanotechnology to new discoveries in evolutionary theory. Kick off your fall with Elkanon Goldberg, a neuropsychologist who will talk about the new executive brain and how it handles complex decisions. For tickets or more information, visit the Science and the City homepage at scienceandthecity.org. My name is Carl Zimmer, and I'm a science writer. I write a lot for the New York Times, and I also write books and magazine articles. Okay, so we're talking about the Tangled Bank, which you call an introduction to evolution. Why did you decide to tackle this topic? Well, I've written a lot about evolution in the past in one way or another. And last year, a textbook publisher came to me and said that there was a a growing uh, need for a good textbook for non-majors about evolution. And apparently one didn't exist. And I thought this would be a great opportunity to synthesize a lot of the things that I had been writing for the New York Times and elsewhere into uh, a book that could you know, introduce evolution to people who don't really know much at all about it. And to actually bring them up not to what people knew in the 1950s, but to bring them up to what we know now in 2009. Well, yeah, one of the things that I found really interesting about your book was that, you know, we've been thinking about evolution for a really long time, and we've been studying it for a really long time, so there's a lot of history in the field of evolutionary biology, but what your book seems to really focus on is contemporary research and what scientists are doing right now, today. Um, So I was wondering if you think that people are aware of all of this new science that's happening in the field of evolutionary biology today? I don't think that people are aware of just how fast research in evolutionary biology is going. In fact, uh, when I sent out the textbook for different scientists to look at, to check it for accuracy, a lot of them would come back and say, wow, I didn't know that all these things had happened. Um, It's happening so fast that it's actually hard for evolutionary biologists themselves to keep up with all the developments. And things are moving along in all sorts of different aspects of evolution. So, for example, the the co-evolution of parasites and their hosts like us, which gives rise to a whole branch of evolutionary medicine. Um, The the study of, of genomes to look for the signature of evolution in our own DNA and the DNA of other species. Uh, and even the discovery of incredible new fossils uh, that 
really help us to understand the transitions to, to new forms of life. All these things are, are moving along really quickly. Okay, so obviously this book is chock full of really cool examples of evolution and where we can see it. Um, but I'm wondering if in your research and in writing this book, you stumbled along any especially cool or neat examples that caught your eye. Well, uh, I was particularly uh, gratified to be able to write about the evolution of the eye from a new perspective in this book, because uh, it's the 150th anniversary of the origin of species this year, uh, actually this November, and in that book, Darwin wrote about the eye as an example of, of a complex adaptation that uh, he wanted to explain through evolution. And, and he said, you know, if I'm right, then the eye must have evolved through these kinds of processes. And if it couldn't possibly have evolved, uh, then I'm, you know, I, I face a serious problem with my theory. Mm-hmm. And so he laid out uh, really a, quite a brilliant argument uh, based on the evidence he had at the time. And he said, look, our eyes are indeed very complex. They have lenses and retinas and all sorts of other components that allow us to make detailed images in our brains of what we see. But the fact is that there are lots of animals that have much simpler eyes. Uh, You have some animals that are just sensitive to light or dark, and that's it. And he pointed out how you could see a gradation from incredibly simple light detectors to what are called camera eyes, like ours, that make images. And so that was his argument 150 years ago. So now scientists are actually uh, able to identify the genes that are involved in building eyes, our eyes, and the eyes of other animals. And they can trace the evolution of those genes. Uh, And just in the past year, literally, um, there have been a whole lot of breakthroughs showing how, um, you know, our eyes and and the eyes of, say, jellyfish actually share a a common history that nobody really even appreciated uh, just until recently. Um, So that's just an example of of how, uh, how fast these areas are moving. And so... Again, and with the anniversary of the origin of species coming up, it was really satisfying to be able to revisit the evolution of eyes with this new perspective. So obviously our pretty recent ability to study genes and genomes has really expanded what we are able to know about our, our evolution and our ancestry. It's very interesting to look at the rise of, of genetics in the study of evolution, uh, just from my own experience. So I wrote my first book called At the Water's Edge in 1998, and part of that book is about the origin of whales. Um, so whales evolved from land mammals, and uh, the question has been, well, what land mammals are their closest living relatives? And um, at the time, uh, just as I was finishing the book, there were some very, very simple studies on DNA of whales and a few land mammals, and the results suggested, well, maybe it might be hippos. Uh, and I put that in the book at the last minute, but in a very hesitant way, and I was just saying, this is a new way of looking at the evolution of whales. We've had lots of studies on fossils before. Now, looking at the DNA of whales is just starting to emerge as a, as a really viable 
possibility. Well, today, uh, you know, scientists can look at much, much, much bigger chunks of whale DNA and DNA of other mammals, and uh, it's abundantly clear now that, indeed, hippos are the closest living relatives of whales. There's really no question, because study after study after study after study uh, replicates that finding. Um, and so, you know, now what scientists are doing is they're taking you know, the whole genomes of different species and trying to figure out how all of life is related to each other, you know, the an entire tree of life, as it were. And one of the things they discover is that the tree of life, as a metaphor, doesn't work in some cases, you know, that, that it works very well when you're talking about whales and hippos, for example, but if you're talking about bacteria, for example, or the very very early stages of life on Earth, um, life didn't really evolve like a tree. It was more like a web because genes were moving back and forth between species fairly often. Um, and that's just something that, um, you know, people just didn't really appreciate when I started out as a science writer. Hmm. So it's just yet another radical change in how we understand uh, the history of life. So one thing I thought was a really neat example of evolution um, that was pretty easy for me to grasp was the HIV virus, because scientists now use bacteria and viruses to study mutations and genetic changes because these organisms reproduce so quickly. Um, so I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about what we know about the evolution of the HIV virus and how this is helping us work towards, I guess, a cure for the infection. So scientists became aware of HIV in the early 1980s, uh, and really uh, in the 1990s, they started to to look very carefully at it uh, in terms of its evolution. And actually, understanding the evolution of HIV has become central to understanding the virus itself and the disease. So, for example... Um, the question is, well, where did HIV come from? Uh, and now scientists know pretty precisely where it came from. Um, it's actually, HIV is actually several different strains of viruses that hopped into the human species from, uh, in a couple of cases, monkeys, and, and then in a number of other cases, chimpanzees. And, and so you can, you can trace that evolution all the way down to that, to that jump or those jumps. And so then you can start to say, well, okay, how do, do these viruses infect those primates, and how do they infect us? Do they make chimpanzees sick? It turns out that chimpanzees do indeed get sick from at least some kinds of uh, HIV relatives. So what's happening inside of them? Maybe you can use that to understand what's happening inside of us. And in fact, every time a person... Uh, is infected with HIV, you have a whole new evolutionary process going on where the virus is adapting to our immune systems and you know, mutants that can evade the immune system, that can replicate faster. They're the ones that eventually are more common in a person's body, and then they, they may then spread to another person. Uh, and uh, you also have to face the threat of resistance to uh, antiviral drugs uh, because, the, again, these things are, are evolving all the time. So 
you just wouldn't be able to understand HIV without looking at its evolution. Yeah, and it's interesting because I think a lot of people assume that evolution is something that happens really slowly, but actually some of these bacteria or viruses can evolve to become resistant to antibiotics really quickly, and we can actually watch that happen. Yeah, what's amazing now is that scientists uh, can actually see evolution of antibiotic resistance happening in the lab. They can they can say, well, this particular antibiotic looks promising. Um, is this really the the silver bullet? Will this really uh, kill all bacteria and we don't have to worry about resistance again? Uh, and unfortunately, uh, there are cases where these uh, seemingly foolproof antibiotics are, are uh, used on on bacteria in the lab, and it just takes a couple hundred generations for these bacteria to evolve really powerful resistance to them. And you can just watch it happening right there. But at least you can watch it, and you can understand it, and you can say, all right, well, these are the mutations that occurred that brought that resistance about. I mean, that's how finely uh, finely honed... uh, our understanding of evolution is that you could actually zero in on the individual mutations favored by natural selection. And you could say, well, what did they do to that bacteria to make them so resistant? Uh, and at least now you, you have the information you can then use to, to try to come up with something better. Okay, so I want to switch gears a little bit and talk about the illustrations in your book because, A, I think they're really beautiful, and, B, I think that they might help somebody who's really turned off by, say, text-heavy science to really understand what you're talking about. Um, Can you maybe describe what the illustrations in the book are like for somebody who can't see? (laughs) Sure. Uh, So for me, evolution has always been a very visual kind of science. So when, when I'm talking to a scientist about uh, you know, a new fossil and what it says about, say, the evolution of flight, for example. I'm I'm trying to see it in my head. I'm trying to see that feathered dinosaur. I'm trying to see how the bones fit together and so on. And and I wanted to to use uh, illustrations as much as possible in my book to to get across some of the important concepts in uh, evolution. So, for example, um, I have a number of, of evolutionary trees where I'm showing how um, big evolutionary transitions have taken place. And and we have a pretty good idea of how they took place because of lots of evidence from fossils and from living species. And so, for example, with flight, I I have pictures of various dinosaurs, and I also have pictures of their hands, showing how their hands step-by-step turned into wings, and also showing how... Uh, that evolution took place over time with a timeline. So you can you can see all the different lines of evidence that scientists study just on one page, uh, and that's important because you know evolutionary biologists are, are always synthesizing lots of different kinds of information, whether it's from fossils or from embryos or from DNA, uh, just all sorts of stuff. They're thinking about it at the same time. So that was one way that I wanted to get things across. I also just wanted to. Um, you know, show some of the really fascinating and bizarre creatures that are out there. So, for example, um, you know, there are one of our ancient relatives named Tiktaalik was uh, at 
basically at the transition from water to land. And so it lived underwater like a very weird flat-headed fish, but it had elbows and wrists and probably clambered around in the muck. Mm. Uh, and so I enlisted an, an old friend named Carl Buell, who was a master of painting uh, reconstructions of extinct animals, and I just tried to get him to paint as many of these weird creatures as he could uh, and that we could get into the book because um, I think that that can really, uh, more than anything, um, convey to readers just how exciting this stuff is. Just you know, you're, you're dealing with things that look like they came out of some science fiction movie. <laughs> when really they're actually your great, 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 great uncle. That's right. Okay, Carl. So if somebody wants to get their hands on a copy of your book, how do they do that? Um, well, um, it's going to be on sale uh, in October, and they can go to Amazon to and just look for The Tangled Bank, An Introduction to Evolution, uh, or ask for it at their bookstore. All right. Well, thank you very, very much today, Carl, for talking to me about your new book. All right. Well, thank you. Want a sneak peek of Carl Zimmer's latest book? Check out an excerpt from The Tangled Bank in the autumn 2009 edition of the New York Academy of Sciences member magazine. Your copy is free with a membership to the New York Academy of Sciences. If you can't get enough of science in the city, you should try following us on Twitter. Visit us at www.twitter.com slash city. Science in the City is a non-profit program of the New York Academy of Sciences. This means that we need your continued support to keep bringing you this weekly podcast series, as well as the rest of the Science in the City program, like our event series and our new website. For more information on Academy membership or to support Science in the City today, log on to scienceandthecity.org. And as always, we would love your feedback on any of the programs we run here at Science in the City. Send us an email at scienceandthecity at nyas.org. Or you can leave us a voicemail at 212-298-8654. See you next week.